This Friday, 19th of February 2021, Apple TV will debut the first episode of the brand new series of its alternative history show for all mankind. And as well as getting a preview of the series, we were able to interview the show's creator, Ronald D. Moore. And I'm not sure if you've ever heard of a thing called the internet, but if you have, please consider giving us a follow on social media. We're at Space and Things One on Twitter or get involved at Space and Things Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. A massive thank you to all who continue to support the podcast by pressing the share button. It really does mean a lot. But all we want right now is for you to sit back and enjoy episode 25 of the Space and Things podcast. You're listening to the Space and Things podcast with Emily Carney and Dave Giles. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles. And welcome to episode 25 of our podcast. Now, I know last week, at the end of last week's episode, we said we were going to have an Apollo 14 50th anniversary special this week. But our esteemed guest has unfortunately had some trouble with all the crazy weather that's going on in Texas this week. Uh, so we've had to delay that interview so that he can fix a few things. And we're hoping we'll be able to catch him by the end of the week. Uh, so we'll have that for you next week. However, fortunately, we had this show planned for next week, and it was pretty much good to go. So we're not really even missing a beat here. So uh, th- I- I'm pretty sure everyone's going to enjoy what we've got today. It's uh, It was a hell of a lot of fun. Uh, but I want to start last week, Emily. I forgot yeah. to ask you about this. It was in my notes, and I forgot to ask you about it. So you had a new blog post on the National Space Society site, your uh, This Space Available blog, about a favourite topic of yours. But also, there is a movie trailer that's just come out, which all ties in together. Please tell us more. Yes, um, I did a blog post uh, about a, a little over a week ago, and it's a, a, a it's about a book that uh, <laughs> Gerard K. O'Neill, Quindartone, <laughs> um, published uh, nearly 40 years ago in May 1981, and it's called the 2081 a hopeful view of the human future because at that time 2081 was a century away and now it's a little closer than a century away it's only 60 years out uh, there's a possibility uh if medical advances work i might be alive by that point oh, wow. who knows yeah. so uh, i wrote sort of a blog post discussing you know the book and how well it's aged and really just i tried to capture the sort of era that book was published in because it was Published at a time when, you know, everybody was really hopeful, you know, the space shuttle was starting to go Mm. up and everybody was very hopeful that, you know, oh, yeah, in a few years, we're going to be living in space. It's going to be like a routine, you know, and um, some of the things he discussed in the book actually came to pass and some of it hasn't. So it was kind of interesting to think about that. But there is a new movie that's coming out later this year. I don't know when it's coming out exactly. But it's called The High Frontier, The Untold Story of Gerard K. O'Neill. Uh, I'm friends with the filmmakers. Maybe we can get them on uh, later this year. Oh, yes. Uh, I'm sure they'd be happy to talk. But uh, the trailer looks incredible. Like, I was literally, like, pumping my fist in the air watching it. It's really cool. There's so much footage that I'm sure archival footage of O'Neill that I've never seen. You know, I'd like to consider myself an expert on him and... I hadn't seen some of it, and I was like, oh my gosh, you know, this is incredible. It really seems like it charts, you know, kind of his career and story. And a lot of people ask me, you know, why are you so obsessed with GKO? Because he's a white dude scientist, <laughs> you know? <laughs> kind of an odd thing for, you know, somebody like me to be obsessed with, you know? And it's like, 
he was one of the first people I think of that era in the 1970s really of that time to you know to say okay everybody's going to be able to go to space and at the time that sounded insane mm-hmm. like a, a lot of people were like that's crazy you know only only trained astronauts will be able to go to space or only the very rich will be able to go to space and I think now um although a lot of the people who are going to space commercially are do have money. I mean, I have to put that out there. I think we're starting to see it kind of inch towards, you know, okay, maybe we will see regular, you know, regular people in space. And um, so that's kind of the reason why I have such a affinity for O'Neill. He was one of the first people who really was like, space is available for everybody. So I, I'm going to post links uh, to that trailer and to Emily's latest blog within the show notes as always. But uh, let's let's crack on with the uh, the news and sport. Yes. <laughs> okay, we're off to a good start, Flight Cool. Since we last recorded, there have been just two launches to orbit from Earth. On February 15th, the Russians launched a Soyuz a 2.1A rocket to send a Progress cargo ship up to the International Space Station. And on February 16th, SpaceX put another 60 Starlink satellites into orbit after launching a Falcon 9 rocket from Cape Canaveral. However, the now very familiar landing of the first stage rocket onto the drone ship failed for the first time since last March. Uh, It looks like there was a problem with one of the engines on re-entry burn, but the appearance of a... uh, (laughs) Of a flock of seagulls, not the band, <laughs> yeah. but um, not the band. <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> I wanted to make. <laughs> yeah, they just show up out of nowhere and start playing their greatest with, hits with their haircuts and everything. Oh, that would haircuts? be phenomenal! Yeah, amazing. They just start playing their greatest hits all of a sudden, and I ran. Okay. They had that one hit. Okay, I'll stop. I'm so sorry. I screwed that up no, terribly. Our f- okay. A flack of seagulls on the landing. (laughs) Oh, my God. I hate myself. On the landing, drone ship has prompted a number of jokes about SpaceX aborting the landing to save birds. Now, don't mess with the seagull, especially a flack of seagulls. I'm so sorry. I apologize to everybody who's listening to this show today. The thing is, I've enjoyed all the jokes today about the about the seagulls, and now we're just taking it to a whole other level, and I'm I'm enjoying (laughs) it even more. You've just given it a whole new lease of life. So thanks for that. Uh, So after our discussions last week about the three missions uh, that have land uh, arriving at Mars. We've uh, we received images, our first images, from both the Chinese Tiawan 1 probe and the Emirates Hope probe. Both have sent back some stunning scenes from Mars orbit, uh, which have been really delightful to see. I'll post some links, obviously. And NASA's Perseverance rover is due to land the day this podcast is out. Um, as we were told by a guest last week, only 40% of landing missions have been successful in history, uh, in the history of exploring that planet. So we're keeping our fingers crossed that it goes smoothly, and hopefully we'll be able to report that Percy is working fine next week. Yes, uh, I'm confident they'll, they'll do a great job. Me too. And finally, the European Space Agency, or ESA, have released more information about what they are looking for as they start recruiting the next group of astronauts. They have four to six vacancies that they are looking to fill, and they're having a big push to be more inclusive with a search for an astronaut with a disability to run alongside their main search. The director of ESA, uh, Dr. David Parker, has said, to be absolutely clear, we're not looking to hire a space tourist that happens to also have a disability. This individual would have to do a meaningful space mission 
So they would need to do the science. They would need to participate in all the normal operations of the International Space Station. He reiterated in this interview with the BBC, this is not about tokenism. We have to be able to justify to all the people who fund us, which is everybody, including people who happen to be disabled, that what we're doing is somehow meaningful to everybody. And so they're encouraging people who have either a lower limb deficiency or have had restrictive growth to apply. This means I can do it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Love it. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Uh, yeah. I'm very in real life. I'm very small. This pilot project is opened up to people from all backgrounds and ages, although it is confusing calling it a pilot project. But still, um, I think we're going to probably discuss this more. That's really cool. I, I as somebody who um, used to teach a lot of students who had a disabilities, physical and uh, um, developmental otherwise. I think this is incredible. This is really, to me, a step in the right direction. Oh, absolutely. It's only the, the, the word pilot. Yeah. Yeah. Just as I, was, as I was researching it and reading it, it was a few sentences I had to read again. What? Are they looking for a pilot? What? Just bad use yeah. of the word pilot. Anyway. Kind of confusing. Um, ESA have actually had a lot of complaints about diversity recently. Um, and, and with only one of its current astronauts being a woman, who is Samantha Cristoforetti. Uh, it's been 13 years since they last opened the books. And uh, at that time, only 16% of the applicants were female. So they really are, really are hoping that it improves this time around. Uh, the new applications alongside the pilot project mentioned by Emily are being, are being accepted from the 31st of March to the 28th of May. And candidates must have a master's degree or higher in natural sciences, medicine, engineering, mathematics or computer sciences or be qualified as an experimental test pilot. They must be fluent in English and have a good knowledge of a second language. Uh, they need to be between the ages of 27 and 37 and within the height range of 153 to 190 centimetres, 5 foot to 6 foot 2. Damn. So, no good for me this time round, although I at least do fall into the correct age category, although I'm not sure I always speak well English fluently, as you could just see. <laughs> so I must try harder in school and shrink a little. Uh, but yeah, this this whole thing is, is interesting. I can't believe it's been that long since they last recruited any astronauts. But yeah, it's great that they're 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 talking about diversity and, and trying to encourage more people to to have a look at least and, and, and get involved. Absolutely. Um this is kind of a little uh, Oh, not really off topic, but I think in the United States, uh, and I forgot the gentleman's name, but uh, there's a book by Colin Burgess called Shattered Dreams, and um, I can't remember the guy's name for the life of me, but there was a uh, a pilot in the 1960s who who was who'd been in I think a horrible plane accident, and he was an amputee as a result. He I think he lost one or maybe both legs. I forgot, but um. He did apply and I think went through the process to become an astronaut. Oh, wow. And he wasn't selected, but still, um, it's a really cool story of, okay, you know, here's somebody who, despite that, was still like, okay, I'm going to do this anyway, you know. And at the time, this is pretty terrible, um, disability, in the 60s in the United States, disabilities were looked upon a little differently than they are now, which is terrible, but it's yeah. the truth. So um, that story for me, uh, reading that, I was like, wow, that is that must be one heck of a guy to, you know, first go through that awful experience. And then he's like, well, I'm going to turn right around and apply for one of the, you know, top jobs a pilot can get, you know, and I just thought that was incredible. So if you read the book, it's a neat story. Well, that's another book I need to add to my reading list. And of course, I will put that in the show notes. 
Now, there is another side of this, which I think is important and a, a reason why I feel like, like this story is important. And that's because if we're going to start doing longer longer missions further away, then we need to, we need to find out what happens uh, if someone loses a leg on Mars and then they have to come back. You know, how does that affect them with microgravity and things like that? So th mm -hmm. there's that other side of it, which is, which is, I get is complex and, and, difficult to talk about but it's something that does need to we do need to know more about if if all we ever do is only put the most able-bodied people up in space uh we, we're not really going to know if if the future of humanity is space-bound or not or you know can we all have these tourist flights as we spoke about earlier exactly uh, is that safe is that a good idea which i'm sure you know i'm sure they'll figure it out but it's going to take some figuring out isn't it I, i'd assume Exactly. Yeah. I, I feel like it's a good stride in the direction because like, you know, like we discussed earlier, you know, the, the point is, I think of a lot of space travel is, you know, we want to have regular people in space eventually. Right. Yeah. Well, people with disabilities are regular people, you know? Yeah. Uh, sometimes I'll read the astronaut applications. I, I filled out one and I never sent it in because I was like, they're they're just gonna be like, they're gonna send a laugh emoji. They're not even gonna send a, <laughs> they're not even gonna send a rejection letter. They're just gonna send a laugh emoji and be like, just shut up. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's like, oh, they want more scientists with you know who are doctors and lawyers and who can run a three minute <laughs> mile and have a six pack. Okay, never mind, not doing this, you know. And um, yeah. Most of us are not like that. So it's yeah, just yeah. something that, you know, yeah, I think we need to think about. Absolutely. Anyway, should we crack on with the uh, with the weather? Yes, let's crack <laughs> on then. Airman from the planet Earth, first set foot upon the moon, July 1969, so, in episode 20 of this podcast, we looked at the history of the alternative history genre within space fiction. That's quite a sentence I wrote there. <laughs> uh, this episode saw us get more responses from people than any previous episode. Uh, so, we knew we'd have to revisit it at some point. And part of the reason we covered... Uh, that topic at that point was because of the upcoming release of the second season of For All Mankind, which starts to air this week on Apple TV. Now, after we made that podcast, I sent some speculative emails to various people to see if we could blag getting one of the cast or the crew to come on to talk about the new series. Uh, and amazingly, I received a reply, I received a couple of rejections, but I received an email from someone who's doing the PR for the show who said they could arrange an interview with the show creator, Ronald D. Moore. Now, Emily and I were both thrilled by this news, but at the bottom of the email was a further surprise as there was a link for the two of us to be able to watch the whole of season two. Uh, obviously, there are various embargoes in place on what we can and can't talk about with this, but needless to say, it's been lovely that we've even considered important enough to get that preview. Yes, uh, it's pretty awesome. We will talk more about the new series after we played the interview, but please note that this interview does contain some spoilers of season one. So if you still haven't seen that and you wanted to, please skip ahead. Uh, Ronald joined us for a little while on Friday afternoon and was really wonderful. He answered all of our questions and carried on talking to us uh, more about the show after we stopped recording. Uh, Ronald is perhaps best known for his writing for Battlestar Galactica, for which he won a Peabody and an Emmy Award. He has also written for Star Trek, The Next Generation, and Deep Space Nine, and Outlander, which is a show based on uh, the novel series by Diana Gabaldon. I think I got her name right. 
which sees a former World War II nurse being transported back to Scotland in 1743. Uh, Dave and I are both huge fans of For All Mankind, Mm -hmm. so it was really great to talk to Ronald, and we hope that you enjoy this interview. Uh, so, Ron, thank you, thank you very much for agreeing to jo- join us, uh, and welcome to Space and Things, the podcast. Um, so, to begin with, obviously, previously you've been involved with sci-fi space TV shows, um, but has alternative history always been in your head, uh, or is this just an experiment gone correct? Uh, how did you first come to to, to create for all mankind? Uh, well, first, I, I would say that yeah, I've always sort of liked alternate history and, and speculative fiction and. Uh, I just like history in general and a lot of historical fiction and then alternate scenarios always sort of fascinated me. You know, things like if Admiral Nagumo had made a big different choice at the Battle of Midway, how would it have changed and how would the whole war in the Pacific? You know, I, I love those kinds of thought experiments and just seeing how dominoes might fall in a different direction. This particular one came out of a conversation that Zach Van Amberg and I had. Zach is now one of the presidents of Apple TV+. Plus. He used to be president of Sony uh, Pictures Television, and I had a deal for Sony for about a decade. And years and years ago, he and I had had a casual conversation about NASA in the 70s. He remembered Skylab as a kid, and he was like, oh, you know, I, th- I think about Skylab every once in a while. Wouldn't it be cool to do a, a show set in that era? And I said, yeah, that would be cool. But that was as far as it went. We never really took it anywhere. Then when he left Sony a couple of years ago to go to Apple, he called me up and said, hey, let's talk. And he said, uh, I still think about that NASA show. What if we did it? What if we did a, a Mad Men style show set at NASA in the 70s? And I said, oh, that'd be really cool. Let me go think about it. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that to me, at least, the story of NASA in the 70s is kind of a sad one. It's you know declining budgets, less and less ambitions, you know, and you go from the glories of Apollo and we're going to do all these amazing things to we're going to do the space shuttle and that's about it. And I came back to Zach and said, what if we did the alternate version, the, the, the space program that I thought we were going to get when I was a kid, but that we didn't get, where we, we did have moon bases and we had more space stations and we went to Mars and that the program really expanded and sort of became the road that takes you to Star Trek, you know, someday. And that's where, where the alternate history sort of uh, concept came from. So I just wanted to say um, gender and race, I noticed play, um, especially in the second season, and I'm not going to provide spoilers. I'll let the our uh, listeners uh, view the show for themselves. They play a big role, obviously, um, in the show, uh, especially this time around. It, it's kind of similar almost to Star Trek. Um, in that women are really allowed to have their own lives. I know that sounds, you know, like a no-brainer, but you don't see that a lot, you know, in every show. Was that a conscious thing or was that kind of an an afterthought, you know? Because I think the gender and uh, race dynamics of the show are really an interesting kind of exploration of the of the times and it makes the show unique to me. Yeah, I mean, it was conceptual to to the development of the show. At the beginning, when I was saying to Zach, you know, let's do a bigger and better space program and let's do the program that not only moves things ahead technologically, but moves society forward and become that we become a better society overall as a result of the space program. Well, how would that how and why would that come to happen? And started talking with my co-creators, Matt Wolpert and Ben Nadevi. And I pointed out that, well, you know, the Soviets put a woman in space like 20 years before the Americans did. And they did it as a stunt, you know, in all honesty. But in this context of the alternate world where 
they're going to the moon before we are. What if they put a woman on the moon just to, again, really sort of jab at the Americans? What would the American response be in that context? Now they've lost this, the race to the moon and they put a woman on the moon. And wouldn't Americans like freak out and go, yeah, where's what the hell? Where's our women? Where are our female astronauts? And from that little thing that starts as a PR response, it then puts women in the American public's, you know, uh, uh, viewfinder. Suddenly they're watching women do big heroic things in space that heretofore had been done only by straight white men. And suddenly you've got women going and doing these things. And Molly does incredibly brave stuff, you know, when she goes to the moon and risks her life and finds, finds ice and, uh, and it would just spark this kind of cultural conversation. It felt like that once, you know, you started seeing women do these amazing feats of daring do, it would change people's perceptions and would change sort of what we thought about it in terms of heroes. And then more societal change follows on that. Then there's more racial diversity <clears throat> and it keeps expanding. So it's, it, what started as just kind of a PR stunt could have this big snowball effect. And again, it was a deliberate choice of the show to sort of say, hey, the space program is going to make us a better world. And here's part of being a better world. Absolutely. I, f I feel that as well. It's, it's almost like, although uh, the premise was bad thing, America not as good as they thought they were in terms of space, uh, it creates a world which is better in many ways. The, the way that's developed through the series was was very interesting and well done. One thing ab about the characters, which I find really interesting, is when, when you are creating a show like this where there are real people and fictional characters, is that difficult? Like, for example, you have Neil Armstrong, Deke Slayton is, is very prominent, Gene Krantz, and, and people like those next to these fictional people that you have uh, you have created. Do you feel a duty to portray these people a certain way? And does that add compli complications in your creation process? It took a lot of thought, and we, we spent a lot of time working that out. I mean, where we kind of ended up was to say, if we're going to use historical figures in this alternate reality, we had to try to play true to who they were. You know, and try not to just make them suddenly wife beaters or, you know, horrible people all of a sudden just for the sake of drama. If we're going to do something like that, we should have our fictional characters. So try to honor the people as we understand who they were, like Deke Slayton. We tried to play uh, who we understood Deke to be in this new circumstance. What was his character? What, what was his personality life? What, what would he really do? And, you know, we even were able to do things like the real Deke Slayton, who was head of the astronaut office just put himself on Apollo Soyuz because he could, you know? So we thought, well, certainly that Deke Slayton in our reality is going to put himself on a space <laughs> mission. Absolutely. Right. That story did not feel like it was violating sort of a sense of who the, who the man was in history. And we tried to do that with all of them, with Gene Kranz and even with Von Braun, we tried to stay to hew very closely to what the historical record said about Von Braun, about what he himself had told the army and in other interviews about his experience in Germany, what his defense of himself was and what he always maintained was his knowledge, right or wrong. And then we just kind of had the character play that and let the audience sort of draw their, their own conclusions based on everything else around it. But it's, it's always kind of a balancing act of there's a temptation. You want to bring in historical characters, but then you find yourself kind of limited because you're you don't want to change them so much that they're just completely different people. So 
more times than not, they're not the central focus of a story. They're usually like a, a supporting character in our tale. Which kind of leads me on to this. When you're doing an alternate history where there is one main what if, so the what if being what if the Russians land on the moon first, and does it get harder or easier as you move away from that first point? Um, so season two starts with this great montage of all the new things that have happened in this new world, which are now nine years further on than we were after that original point. And there are stories that people will know and uh, with characters that people will know with that may be different from from what we know in real life. But does that make it harder or easier the further you get from that first point? No, it's still it's very similar because you're trying to, or at least we're trying to, uh, maintain a connection to the history that people know. Uh, we wanted the '80s to be recognizable as the '80s, um, even as we're changing it. We we wanted it to still feel like, well, this could all really happen. Like that was very important to us was the sense of reality to this alternate universe we're creating that everything we're doing we wanted to be plausible we wanted to be something that at least could have happened so you the 80s had to kind of look somewhat familiar they had to have familiar signposts along the way uh ronald reagan is still president now he's in his second term as opposed to his first term but the 80s without ronald reagan is kind of a fundamentally different decade at least in the united states mm. and likewise certain pop cultural references it had to be there certain music but then the fun comes in deciding well what are the events that we are going to change that could plausibly have changed there are some things that are choices uh for the the geopolitics of the show about how the confrontation with, between the soviet union and the united states has developed as a result of the landing on the moon. And there's a, a definite chain of events that leads you to certain things like the Soviets deciding uh, not to invade Afghanistan, for, for instance, that's a direct result of what we're doing. But some of the other things like, you know, certain assassinations that happen or did not happen are more just kind of butterfly effects sort of, well, this would be kind of interesting. Let's if we create an alternate reality, what if we change these other little pieces here that are not directly tied to the events of the show, but they can plausibly have changed because, you know, the butterfly effect just says that odd little things can have unexpected consequences. Why not? Let's change some of those things because they're kind of interesting or fun. You all really nailed down the the look and the feel of um the of space flight and um really the overflow area areas um in those eras. For example, like they have that kind of that crappy bar, you know, the outpost. <laughs> you know, and um there there was a uh a popular hangout at you know around JSC with the with the same name for a really yeah. long time. That's what we based it on. I think it burned down a a few years ago. So y'all yeah. really did the homework here. I don't know. I sound kind of butt kissy right now. It really does make the show feel like it's real in the moment. You know those sure. little kind of Easter eggs. Um, how did you guys manage to do that? You know, um, did what you know what kind of consultants did you use for the show because. That those little things, I'm like, wow, they got that just perfect, you know. Oh well, I really appreciate that, and you know, it, it's a salute to the entire production, really. I mean, Dan Bishop in particular, who's our production designer, is meticulous with this sort of thing. And Dan, I'd worked with him on a show called Carnival for HBO, which was a period show in the '30s, and he did enormous research and he worked on Mad Men and really got all that right too. So Dan, this is Dan's thing. He really digs deep into the research and tries to get all the details right. Uh, but that kind of spirit sort of imbued the whole production. You know, it was important to me to get it all right because I grew up with the space program and the Apollo era, and I remember it, and I collected all kinds of you know, books and magazines, and I wrote letters to NASA, and they would send back photographs. And so I really sort of breathed in all that stuff 
So I wanted all those details to be right because they meant something to me. They meant there was a way to sort of honor the real work that had gone on by the by the, all these men and hundreds of thousands of men and women across the space program who did these amazing things. On the show, you know, Dan, like I said, is an inveterate researcher. Uh, we also had Garrett Reisman, who is an ex-astronaut, who is our, our technical consultant, who I've known for many years. Uh, also, Mike and Denise Akuda, who were uh, art directors on uh, Star Trek for many, many years and also worked with, with NASA. And I think they, the Akutas had actually helped design some of the patches for, for real missions. So they had real intimate knowledge of, of certain graphics and the way things are done. And they, they, they knew the Apollo spacecraft somehow, some way, inside and out and how it worked and and we would have Garrett and or Mike and Denise even on set while we were shooting scenes in the Apollo spacecraft to help the actors. Okay, press this, not that. When you're looking at this gauge and not that gauge. And then, you know, all the way through the process. So we're in post-production looking at the cuts and editorial. Mike and Denise and and uh, 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 Garrett are looking separately. And they're sending us back pages of technical notes going, okay, when the spacecraft is in this orientation and this booster fires, it should do this, but it's in facing the wrong direction, or that gauge is actually saying so many pounds per square inch, and it should say this, and the whole thing. And we sometimes we can't do everything. Sometimes there are just certain sacrifices you make for dramatic storytelling, or because it's just too expensive to go back in and change something that we didn't realize at the time. But I'd say, you know, we had pretty high batting average where we tried to get all the technical details uh, right as best we could. And that same philosophy went to places like the outpost and mission control and the, the culture of, As of NASA was an important thing for us. And to try to get the nomenclature right and talk about, you know, NASA was, is bigger than just the people that were inside Moker and there are these back rooms. And there's, it, it's a very complex organization. We really wanted to convey that's the sense of the overall program uh, to the audience. All right. As as a show's creator on something like this, um, obviously you've got ten episodes, season one, and then a whole another ten episodes, and you don't write every single episode. Um, is it hard to let go of some things? Like you're still clearly on board here, so does every every one of the plot points have to be run by you, or uh, or, or as a technical thing, how does a writer's room work? Because I'm always intrigued by this. Uh, my only my only experience of any kind of thing like this is from listening to West Wing podcasts and hearing Aaron Sorkin hit talk about stuff and, and how when he left the West Wing, it was hard for him to ever watch anything because people were playing with his, his babies. Right. Do, you have a, do you have a similar thing or, or, or is that not something you've had to worry about in this instance? Well, every show is, you know, every show and every writer's room in particular is sort of reflective of how the showrunner likes to do business. Uh, and I run the show the way I was brought up at Star Trek, you know, and uh, the, the great Ira Bear taught me that in, in a writer's room, the, the showrunner is first among equals. And that's kind of how I treat the writer's room. You know, I, here's a direction that I want us to go. I have an idea of what this is, but let's all, everything's up for grabs and let's argue about it. And please tell me, let, let's debate. And I kind of listen a lot and I try to draw the best idea out of the room. Oh, that's good. Let's do that instead of this and put it up on the board. And it's a constantly evolving kind of thing. Um, the first season of a show is the one I'm the most involved with because the first season is where you're making all the fundamental decisions about everything, just mm -hmm. literally everything, the look, the style, the color, the music, the sound, you know, the, the cast, the, the rhythm and pace, the tone, everything is a constant. Every decision you make is informing what the, the, the pro what the project's going to be. So year one, yeah, I'm in the, every writer's room session and 
you know, I'm reading every draft of every script and I'm rewrite, doing rewrites on some of them. Uh, Matt and Ben are doing rewrites on other. And we're kind of discovering the show as we're creating it for the first time. We're, we're realizing what works and what doesn't work. And there's a lot of ideas that you had at the outset that don't play out or you discovered something different. And so it's a constant evolution and just sort of uh, trying to make the show better and better as it goes on. As we get into third season, Matt and Ben are really running the show. And now I'm more supervising. I'm kind of in and out of the writer's room. And it's going to be more akin to sort of where I've, I've gotten to on Outlander. And Outlander, Matt Roberts runs that show. And I'm not in the writer's room at all. But I'll read the scripts and I'll kind of send Matt some thoughts of mine from afar. Like, oh, okay, I read the script and here's kind of my thoughts on it. But they're not mandates anymore because now he's the guy that's actually running the show. And I'll still sit in post-production and look at the cuts and I'll, I'll re-edit the cuts and, and play with the cuts because that's just one of my passions and, and I still enjoy it. So it's kind of a, it's a long answer. It, it's kind of a, an evolving thing. And, you know, you try to sort of uh, find the, find a way to bring out the best in all your people. You know, it's television is a team sport. My job is really to get all these artists and artisans to do their very best work. And yes, yeah, somebody at the end of the day has to say, well, we're going left instead of right. Mm. And that's my job. But I try not to make it just by fiat. I try to make it, well, what, what's the best idea here? What's the best for the show? What, what, what's the, who had that crazy idea yesterday? Let's do that instead of the thing I was trying to do this morning. Mm. And have we just got a scoop there that the season three is in development? Yeah, well, we got picked, we were picked, yeah, we were picked up for season three. Oh, I didn't know that. Fantastic news. Yeah, we're writing scripts uh, as we speak and we'll be in production um, pretty soon. Yes, that's All great right. news. Um which leads me on to this. How many seasons did you intend on doing this? When you first sat down and had the idea and, t- and taking budgets out of the equation, what did you think the audience needed from this project? How many seasons did you foresee this going? Well, we at the outset, we, we asked ourselves that question. Like, what's the, what's the big picture for the show? And we wanted it to show uh, the expansion and the development of the space program in a big way. So we knew right off the top that it had to get out of the seventies. Like we couldn't do the whole show in the seventies because even on an accelerated timeline, it was only going to go so fast. So now we're talking, let's start skipping decades in every season. Let's skip about 10 years and to really see a change and develop. So now it's a multi-generational show. And mm-hmm. we, at the outset, we scope, we sketched out like seven seasons. Let's, let's, pick a number and we sort of said let's do seven seasons worth of story for him to get from here to here and we had sketches of all seven now in an ideal world i'd love to do all seven you know um we'll see it's it's yeah. about success and it's about money and you know you never know so, so hope is eternal and uh, i hope we i hope we get it yeah that's that's interesting obviously in season one there is a there is a storyline that runs runs through that of the of the mexican family which you don't really get the payoff in season one. And, and I've only seen the first couple of season two so far, and I've no idea where that's going either. But I, I like how, how from the off, you had a storyline run through, which clearly had a long arc. And you could tell, okay, this one, I've no idea where this is going to pay off and, and, and where we're going to go with this. Uh, yeah. w- did, did you have that freedom at the start, knowing you were picked up from th- for three seasons? Well, we, we were just picked up for one, right? We, right. They, do, they pick us up one at a time. So all we right, knew okay. was season one. But we just made the bet. Like, let's just, let's play the big game. And nice. let's open the show. Like, the opening shot is of Alita looking at the moon. Absolutely. So let's start, like, right there and tell the audience, yeah, this is a long, there's a, there's a long game going here. And you're right, it doesn't pay off in, in season one. And uh, 
but that's the nature of the show. And, you know, you'll see into season two, there are several characters that were kids in season one that are now teenagers and adults into season two. And that kind of generational handoff will, will continue to happen over the life of the series. Kind of on the that note, um, any possible things to uh, I'm getting through season two now uh, and I'm not going to give spoilers for our listeners. But uh, any possible things to look for in the future? Are we going to see Atomic Skylab? <laughs> Hopefully. Atomic Skylab? Yeah, Atomic Skylab. I just came up with that. I don't know. <laughs> well, you will see Skylab. I'll give that away. Yeah, Sky, Skylab exists in our in our alternate uh, timeline in, in season two. Uh, it's a Cold War. You know, the, the Cold War is heating up in season two, to say the least. And uh, the militarization of space is a big story in season two. Um and the you know that the cold war between the us and ussr has now expanded into space so there's competition in low earth orbit there's anti-satellite weapons at play reagan's star wars initiative is in full full swing and both moon bases have expanded and they're starting to become disputes over over territory on the moon and they're starting to have the questions of well who's going to introduce weapons on the moon for the first time and under one circumstances and how would that how would that play itself out so you're seeing sort of all the the tensions really start to come to a boil in, in, in the second season. We have a Patreon page, Ron, for our podcast, and we ask our patrons if they have any questions for our guests. Now, people were very excited when you were coming on, um, and we got a lot of questions. So I'm I'm handpicking a few here. Uh, they they kind of stray a little bit near where where we were, um, and some have already been covered, so I won't be reading those out. But this one's from Leo. Um, he says that we hear the names of astronauts like Gene Cernan, uh, and obviously they never make an appearance. And we, we did kind of talk about this. Uh, and Apollo 10 has Gordo Stevens and Ed Baldwin. Do you plan on bringing in some of these other big name astronauts in upcoming seasons for, or ones we do know, like Sally Ride and Story Musgrave? Or do they just kind of, has that butterfly effect moved on so it's complete new people in, in that world? Uh, we're going to still try to work them in here and there. There, there are a couple of real astronauts that are in, in uh, second season. Sally Ride is one of them. Uh, there's also an astronaut, uh, not as well-known, uh, Webel Ockels, a Dutch astronaut from the European Space Agency. He flew, I think, on. Uh, I'm going to get the whole history wrong, but I think he flew on the shuttle, and I think he he, he was on the International Space Station for a time. Uh, so he, he's portrayed in, in second season too. Um, and we'll probably keep referring to them uh, in third season. I don't know if, if we're going to do that that again because now we've there comes a point where we've started to diverge diverge from the main line so so far away that it's it's less and less about the specific events and and people that were involved in the program. But it, it is still fun to continue to 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 work them in. Yeah. Uh, well, he he goes on and says. Do you think there will ever be a flashback episode to to perhaps other things that happened in that original Apollo era era that m- then we may see Jim Lovell on the moon, for example? Oh, plus, you know, is that something that interests you in, within within making this, or are you kind of no? We've, we've done that era now. We're moving on to the next. We have probably moved on to the next. But I, if there was a, an excuse to do that, I would love to do that. It would be fun to put Jim Lovell on the moon because <laughs> yeah. in our version, Apollo, the Apollo thirteen disaster did not did not happen. So they did land on the moon. It would be kind of fun to actually show that. Nice. 
Um, so Br- Brittany has said, uh, she says, I love that you created a storyline where the US responded to a female cosmonaut on the moon with NASA immediately bringing in a diverse class of strong women to become the first female astronauts. When selecting these characters, what characteristics do you want these women to portray? Were you looking at today's space industry or where we are right now to get to draw inspiration of where where that may have ended up back then? To, to an extent. I mean, we, we compiled the original astronaut uh, class of female astronauts in terms of story. Like we wanted certain kinds of women there and we were looking ahead to where it was all going by the end of the season and also thinking about which of these characters would probably continue beyond the season and become, you know, series regulars, you know, as, as the story went forward. But we definitely were influenced by where the program is today and sort of what, what some of the characteristics are. And one more from Amar, and I like this question. Do you, do you face any creative challenges when creating an alternative history of finding a balance between what you wanted to see in the show and what you felt people would see as being plausible or believable? Was that difficult in, in terms of, we want to see this, but actually it really wouldn't be plausible? Yeah, I mean, we ran into that several times, especially in, in season one, uh, when we were constructing uh, the story uh, of the finale, you know, when when one of the the, the, uh, the one of the Apollo spacecraft is crippled, and Ed Baldwin has come up in the LSAM and the rescue and tossing the tank and all that, that took a lot of work, you know, because our initial thoughts, I can't even remember what the initial pitches from the writers' room were, uh, but when we brought Garrett in, he basically was like, "You, you can't, that doesn't work at all. Like <laughs> nothing, <laughs> nothing that you just said would actually happen." So. It took a while, because, and you know our instinct as writers, especially writers in science who come out of science fiction, you can always say, "Well, you know, the Enterprise warp drive uh, happens in uh, mysterious uh, functions in mysterious ways. And this week, the warp drive can do this, and the dilithium crystals we discover this new property that allows them to do that." And but we had set ourselves this sort of limiter and said, "Okay, we're not going to do that in this series. In this series, we wanted it to be as." Uh, grounded as possible and that we wanted to be able to defend everything we wanted it to be real so it got you know there were points where it was frustrating we're like god i just want you know just trying to get to this dramatic moment where this and that happens and uh, but we just kept working the problem and garrett was uh, you know really worked with us and he would go away and we'd spend hours in the room and uh one of our writers bradley thompson is particularly adept at the, at the technical aspects and actually understands orbital mechanics i'm like all of the rest of us like i barely understand orbital mechanics but brad really gets it and brad would get up on the whiteboard and draw pictures for the rest of us dummies <laughs> and try to explain how this stuff happened and eventually we got to a place where we could have both where we could have a dramatic and satisfying story and it could be scientifically valid but you know it took effort it, it took a commitment to to not just give up and say oh screw it let's just 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 make the ships do whatever we want them to do yeah yeah. Thank you very much for joining us. This has been Thank this you. has been really insightful and uh it, yeah, it's been great. Thank you very much for for spending some time with us and um we hope that the the season goes well and long may this show continue because we both love it. Absolutely. Thank you and I've enjoyed being here. Thank Thanks you. Ron. Thank you. Thank you. This is Gene and I'm on the surface. And as I take man's last step from the surface. So as always, the full unedited interview uh, can be viewed on our Patreon page over at 
patreon.com forward slash space and things. It's always the, also the place to go if you want to find out more uh, about our future guests and, um, and pose your own questions to them. But that really was a great interview. I really enjoyed talking to him. And let's be honest, Emily. I mean, he said the magic word within the first answer. Your yes! face, your face. I was, I was. Uh, do I put a Quindar tone under this? I didn't because I, you know, it's not you saying it. So I was like, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. But it's worth joining Patreon just to see the video of your face as he mentioned Skylab twice yes. <laughs> within within no time at all. It was very exciting. Uh, but what what a lovely guy and and a super interview. I thought. Yes, it was awesome. Uh, obviously, uh, he had me at first Skylab. <laughs> I was not no longer being a journalist at all. I was just like, I love your show so much. <laughs> Can I tell you how much I love your show? So, yeah, that was a lot of fun. So, uh, yeah. you want to talk? Obviously, we're not going to reveal any spoilers here, but uh, you want to talk a little bit about season two? <laughs> sure. So, back to season one. Very first thing, Russia on the moon before America. And season two is nine years after the events of season one. Uh, and it shows what would have happened um, if, as a result of that, NASA had had a bigger budget all the way through the 70s. So you've got multiple programs. And I think this is where it gets exciting for the people like you and I, Emily, because you've got multiple programs going on at once, multiple different rocket schemes going on at once, and you've got a well-funded Russian program at the same time. So there's lots of stuff going on. So the geeky side of me is loving it. Obviously, things happen which we wouldn't want to see happen in space, but as part of the drama... Um, all of the all of the wonderful things that you see are exciting and it's great and they've tied that in with very good storytelling yes. and character development and I think that's where season two really yeah I loved it in season one but season two really takes that on board and, and takes it to the next level loads of cool space stuff cool characters I was really impressed at how they um, developed the the women characters on the show this season like. Um, you really get a lot of answers for a lot of questions that I got a lot of answers for questions that I had in the first season. I was really impressed at how they made them kind of grow into like their role now as now they're more senior astronauts. So I was very impressed with that. And um, like I said, I don't want to give anything away, but it's intense. It's very intense. Just grab onto your hat. That's all I got to say. I, lo- I loved it, but it gets intense. Uh, both Emily and I struggled sleeping the night after we finished watching it. That's that's also worth noting. Like maybe watch it earlier in the day so you've got yeah. time to recover. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about the last few episodes, but, but, but yeah, that's about all we can really say. That's about all we can say, yeah. Little things that for me, and I'm sure plenty of people listening here would enjoy, is the Chief Astronaut's Office and Mission Control. Now, in the background of Mission Control, you're looking at all these patches and you're trying to pick out names and things like that. And then in the, in the Chief Astronaut's op- Office, and this is in Episode 1, we can talk about these kind of things that yeah. they exist. On the background, he's got all of the photos of all of the different crews he's got planned. And some of them are photos of real astronauts. So there was a few times I had to re-watch scenes because I wasn't listening to the dialogue. Yeah. I was looking at the, at the wall on the background trying to spot some of our heroes. So, oh, Alan yeah. Bean got a mission on, yeah. this, on the space shuttle. How cool is that? that. Oh. I was like, that's my friend, man. I, yeah. th- that was my buddy. <laughs> he was everybody's yeah. buddy. But that's Al. Yeah. Woo. yeah. He, gets he got a space shuttle mission in this alternative 
done it. Good you for know, him. Amazing. And then like Tom Stafford, I saw him and Jim Irwin, I could see him. Pretty sure I could I could see a blurred out Ed Gibson as well. I got to rewatch it now. Definitely saw Bruce McCandless on there as well. Uh, so I was having a field day looking up all these different like trying okay. to see all these obviously it was mixed amongst loads of fictional characters as well but trying to trying to find our heroes and imagining them doing various other flights was a lot of fun oh wow uh, and it did dis- it distracted me a little bit but fortunately with the way you watch tv shows these days you can just press pause and then rewatch and find out what you actually missed that was important Okay, yeah, I need to rewatch that part because I don't. I hate to admit this, I just kind of glimpsed at it. I did see Swigert, and I was like, "Yes, Swigert as well." Yeah, he's yeah, not exactly. dead. Woo! Yeah, yeah you know? exactly. He's still around, so that's awesome, and he's still flying, which is really awesome. Yeah, I was really impressed with those little bits of like, like they. I feel like, and and we touched on this in the interview um, quite a bit. I, I they really did their homework for this. Like, I remember seeing Armageddon back in the day. You know, and I'm like, <laughs> yeah. there's just what the hell is this you know it was fun but there was nothing that i was like yeah this could really happen you know whereas you felt like with um you feel like with for all mankind like the people who are writing the shows and um they do have consultants on the show garrett garrett reisman who's an actual astronaut is a consultant but you feel like the people writing and putting together the shows they've really done the research because while you know some of the things are kind of like okay this is a little left field a lot of the historical, the little nods to things, I'm like, that's completely like on point. That's perfect yeah. for the time. You know, that would make sense that they would do this. So yeah, yeah, it's just great. I, I really liked how they how they used they kind of bastardize real stories that had ha- that happened in our time and put them in a slightly different timeline and all that kind of stuff based on what was going on. And but but we use things that we may have been slightly familiar with, but just they're just augmented slightly and i thought i loved it that kind of really got me into that world i was enjoying being in the world one thing i do also want to point out they are killing it on social media all their posts are really good and they're even doing a podcast of their own looking behind the scenes at the show Uh, and the 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 trailer for that looks great so it's something i'm looking forward to listening to absolutely it was great that he told us the season three is coming as well that's good to hear gives us something to look forward to and um yeah, it, that's all I'm going to say. Uh, I think people will enjoy it. Yeah, it's a little unexpected, some of it, but uh, I think people are going to like it. I, I really enjoyed it. So that's all we have time for this week. We hope that you enjoyed the first episode of Season 2 of For All Mankind, and we look forward to hearing your reactions as each of the episodes, each of the 10 episodes, get released over the coming months. Uh, thanks very much for listening to us, and for all your support, it's hard to believe we've actually done 25 episodes now. Yes, we're about six months, uh, well, actually, probably a little over six months in, or no, yes. almost six Just months in. Almost six months in, yeah. Yeah, next week I think will be almost six months in. That's unbelievable. Wow. Well, we've had a great time. We've had a great time. We have indeed. As we said earlier, uh, next week we're hoping to bring you our interview with a very special guest to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 14 mission. Um, thank you so much to all of you for listening. But please remember, in uh, space, no one can hear you me. Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions.